0: You're listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. What's up, Grace Covenant? So good to be with you guys. Isn't this series fun? I mean, I got to tell you, Farrell did such a great job at Life Fellowship last week that he's actually starting there tomorrow. So, you know... Our church loved him, and uh, we really just are so thankful for this opportunity. Uh, you know, just for churches to come together to be able to demonstrate oneness, that we're part of the universal church, is a wonderful thing. And I'm thrilled about tonight's worship service and for the opportunity to come together and see our different worship teams lead us in a time of worship And just thank you so much for uh, your generosity as a church. Uh, Farrell's been a good friend of mine uh, since we moved here over 13 years ago to start Life Fellowship. Uh, Big brother, a mentor, and I've always just admired his heart uh, for people and his shepherding abilities and his kingdom-mindedness. As we think about ministry, I want to personally thank you and what you guys did for Life Fellowship by taking up a special offering a few years back and investing in our land to help us pay for our land before we built our church. I mean, how cool is that? You guys helped Life Fellowship, uh, you know, get off the ground there. So thank you very, very much on behalf of our church. When we moved over to the facilities in December, uh, Pastor Farrell came by with a gift basket from the staff team to say, hey, congratulations. You know, you guys have made it after a long journey. And I am so thankful for just his thoughtfulness. Well, when I considered what it is that God would have me share in this one series, I thought about what is kind of the one thing that could really make a massive difference in the community and the reputation as the church holds forth to its witness and example. And I thought, you know what I really believe that God would love for the church to demonstrate and to experience and to have? It's joy. I believe that joy is the missing link of effective evangelism. In fact, uh, it's been said before that much of today's evangelism is unhappy Christians telling happy sinners how to become an unhappy Christian. (laughs) I mean, who's going to want what we have when we're miserable? People want to know that we have something worth living for. And let me say that joy is contagious. And I'm not talking about a cheesy joy whereby it looks like we've got the ever-permanent smile that's been Botoxed on our face as we walk around with our glassy eyes saying, praise the Lord, right? You know, freaking people out. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness has to do with what's happening. Joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, it's deeper than that. It's richer. It's it's more authentic. But nevertheless, it's there for you and for me. But there are certain things that come along and strip our joy away from us. Joy robbers, I call them. And some of those joy thieves are negativity. We struggle with having a positive outlook. In fact, we feel as though it's It's our part in life to let everybody know our great observations. Because we're just pointing out how things could improve. And God has put us in the world to help with process improvement. And so we go through and we point all that stuff out. And you know what? Thank God for the process improvers. I'm really thankful. But not at the expense of losing sight of our joy. God wants us to to know joy in our life, to model joy. And some of us can struggle even leaning into joy because we're always waiting, as one person once said, for the other shoe to drop. And so the mom who finds out she's pregnant with her second child can't rejoice because now she's convinced something bad's gonna happen to her first child. And we can struggle with that. It's almost like a protective mechanism. I'm not going to lean into joy because we feel as though we can protect ourselves by not allowing ourselves to get disillusioned. So we think about all the negative things that can happen and that negative attitude saps our joy. Bitterness is another instance. We struggle with relational bitterness or why was I made this way or why is my lot turning out to look like this? And that bitterness causes us to sink into a sad state where we lose our joy. Emotional insecurities can cause us to lose our joy as we're wracked with fears and worries and doubts and anxieties and these negative emotions grind us down. Sin and guilt, obviously, can rob our joy from us as we take a path that God has not designed for us, has not called us to, and we end up losing that sense of joy. I also believe that unprocessed traumas can create a loss of joy. In fact, some of you may have never really known what it's like to have a life of deep, rich joy. Maybe you have never been able to get beyond a trauma of Sexual or physical or verbal abuse. And every time you find yourself desiring to move forward, you're stuck in knowing how to do so. Neuroscience has been very helpful today in helping us to understand the way that our brain reacts to traumas. In fact, certain traumas uh, can cause this fight or flight mentality in what is known as the amygdala region of the brain where our amygdala gets hijacked and we think fight or flight. And it's as if the married couple, every time they end up in a conflict, they can never move past it. Or every time we struggle in a certain set of circumstances, we get stuck. It's like we're in quicksand. Why is that? Because there's unprocessed traumas. It stole our joy. And we struggle to arrive at what is known as a mutual mind state with one another that allows us to experience joy in our relationships. And sometimes we're traumatized in our own life by events that we've underwent, whereby we struggle to fall into a mutual mind state with God, because we're projecting on Him. We're we're projecting non-truth upon Him. We're, We're ascribing to Him a narrative for our life that isn't true. And we have this picture of God that doesn't correspond to reality, And what happens is, is that picture then skews our reality, and many people in church remain stuck year after year, message after message, because of unprocessed pain, and they got bitter toward God, and they still show up out of a religious duty, but they're stuck spiritually, and they can't get into that mutual mind state because of a certain lie that they're believing. Well, I want to help you get unstuck this morning. I want to help you to be able to go to a place of joy. But what happens when we lose our joy? We go in search of joy substitutes. We seek to look for joy. Why? Because our brains are hardwired for joy. We look for that dopamine. We look for that that uptick in the brain whereby we can have that rush. But the problem is, is if we don't have true relational joy with God and with others, then we'll substitute it. And then we'll get addicted to vices as we go in pursuit of joy. In their book, Joy Starts Here in the Life Model, the authors uh, lay out some great advice as it relates to what this idea of joy substitutes are. They write, Joy substitutes generate temporary feelings of pleasure that help us regulate internal distress, reduce pain, increase pleasure, and escape negative emotions. Joy substitutes stimulate the release of dopamine in the pleasure center of the brain in the same way as genuine joyful relationships, but only for a moment. While joy gives a lasting flavor of satisfaction and rest, the substitutes are hardly swallowed when we start craving more. The cravings left behind by joy substitutes are very demanding. Some might say we cannot just eat one. And so in light of joy, many of us struggle to find this place of joy because we don't like who we are. We don't like who we've become. So we spend our time projecting a false self to the world. And the pressures of this false self that we project creates an emptiness in our lives. As Thomas Merton, the late mystic monastic monk, once said, I'd rather have the sins of the true self, right, than the lies of the false self. And I would say that when we look at our life, it's important to think, what is joy? Joy is this mental part of our life where it starts the perspective change, and then we commit through the will volitionally to this perspective, and the feelings can sometimes follow. Note, sometimes. To define joy, the same authors in their book, the life model put out, that life model put out, they write this about joy. Joy is relational. Joy is contagious. Joy is transforming. Joy starts with a smile. When we smile, it sends a message from our brain right? Telling us, right? We get this message that, 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 that we are to be joyful. It's hard to be miserable when we smile. Now, I'm not talking about just this fake smile where we just go around, but, but forcing ourselves to, to smile more, to allowing ourselves to enjoy life a little bit more can make a difference. It starts with a smile. Joy helps our brain grow better than any health food. Joy reduces stress. Joy has more social impact than looking sexy. Joy improves our immune system more than exercise. It protects our marriages. Joy raises brighter, more resilient children. Joy improves resiliency after disasters. Joy spreads to transform lives. See, there's a contagiousness to joy. It spreads. It, people want to be around joyful people. Uh, uh, miserable people uh, don't j- attract joyful people. But joy can create and change environments. It, it creates a pl- People that are just constantly miserable will either learn to deal with it or they'll want to get away from it. And so what can we do about this? Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to go to the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to find our joy there. And we're going to meet this prophet who lived uh, about 600 years before Christ. And Habakkuk is known as a minor prophet. Now, you've got minor prophets and major prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Now, it doesn't mean like minor, major, like stud and non-stud, right? It just means uh, longer content, like Isaiah, 66 chapters, or lesser content, like Habakkuk, with three chapters. And this is a book where Habakkuk gets honest to God, and we see him, he's struggling with one of those joy thieves, one that I didn't mention, namely, suffering. He's suffering in his life and his suffering has caused him to doubt God. And I'll tell you what, when we suffer, when we struggle, when we feel angst, we can know what it's like to have our despair turn into doubts. And he's struggling with doubts. And we see that he has no joy in the first chapter. But by chapter three, he has found his joy because he chooses joy. Now, let me tell you the way that this book works so that we can lay this out. You got three chapters and Habakkuk, weird name. I know it sounds like he had a bad day at the chiropractor and got a name after it. But Habakkuk is somebody that is living in a time where his fellow Jews aren't really living for the Lord. Uh, They're living in debauchery. Uh, He's living in a time where people are living indifferent for God and he's frustrated. God, why don't you do something about this? And so what he does is he offers up two complaints to God, and he gets two responses from God. Then in chapter three, there is this great prayer of surrender. And then at the end, in verses 17 through 19, we see this prophet choose joy. With that framework in mind, would you travel with me back into the past? Let's go back about 2,600 years and meet a guy in his despair named Habakkuk. And let's listen to his words as he says in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Can you relate to that? Desiring God to meet you, desiring God to pull you out of your pain, out of the pit, out of despair. How long, O God, when God seems elusive, shy, distant, detached? It seems as if God is playing hide and seek with us at times, doesn't it? How long? And he says, or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, right? And why do you idly look at wrong? You ever watch the news and see what ISIS is doing and think, why, God? Why not intervene? Why do you look idly at this? And we scratch our head. And he says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And what's the result? Well, he tells us, verse 4. So the law or uh, the Old Testament, right? The scriptures is paralyzed. It, it, It seems like it's ineffective. And justice never goes forth. God, it seems unjust that you just stare at this. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So he lays it out there, and here's what I'd want to say first of all. If we are going to return to joy, it begins by being honest with God, by laying it out there, by being vulnerable, authentic, going into God's presence and being real, like he knows what's really going on. And we need more Jewish-style praying like we read about the book of Psalms. God, where are you? Where God can hear our desperation and our plea. So now God responds, but it goes from bad to worse. And the reason it goes from bad to worse is because God says, oh, I'm, I'm going to take care of it. My timing's just not your timing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up a group of people known as the Babylonians, and they're going to come in and they're going to lead my people into captivity. Then a second complaint is, what? How in the world, God, can you take a worse group of people than the people I'm complaining about and bring them in and then use them to punish your people? And now he's really struggling with the ways of God. And man, that can create confusion when we don't understand the ways of God, when we Meet his mystery. We often meet our misery. And so what ends up happening is, is he's in this situation where he complains again. What's up with that, God? And God replies. But something then changes in chapter 3. He keeps at it. He keeps pouring his heart out. He prays and surrenders. And now in chapter 3, by the end, look at how this prophet Chooses joy. He writes in verse 17 of chapter 3 Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, check it out. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So the object of his joy is God. And he's not going to look for joy in the extremities. Rather, he chooses joy that God can sustain him. Now, what I want you to do, lest we rush past this, text too quickly is let's go ahead and get out our microscope and let's zoom in to this a little bit and let's pull out a few features that can help us to understand what he is saying. He says that though the fig tree should not blossom, in other words, though there's no sugar, right, no sweetener for our foods, right, nor fruit beyond the vines, right, though there's no wine, no cab, no pinot grigio, right? Though we can't go out, like you got, some of you are scared, like if I laugh, people are going to think I know what that is, right? Like we kind of did the church laugh right there, like we're not so, right? Right, folks, like no, though there's no wine, right? Right, though there's no wine, though there's n- nothing that we can have from the vine, uh, though the produce of the olive fail, no olive oil, uh, no flock be cut off, right? Though the flock be cut off, no, no prime rib, No porterhouse, no filet mignon with, you know, good bacon wrap action, right? And he says, though there'll be no herd in the stalls, in other words, no animals to do the work, here's what he's getting at. He's saying, though our economy completely crash and our source of income, and though we have no food, he's saying, I will praise you, God, you are enough. And it's a question in trials all of us have to come to terms with where God asks us, am I enough? Man, that's a tough question. Because I think if we're being honest, sometimes there are certain conditions whereby we know we're in, but strip away this, that, or that, and we're not quite sure. And he's saying, I'm in, God, I'm in. So the Bobby Conway paraphrase would be something like, though 131 Maine quit selling their banana cream pie and though Outback Steakhouse no longer sell the Bloomin' Onion, and though you cannot get that hot, steamy bread at Outback or those cheddar cheese rolls at Red Lobster, and though Whole Foods will never sell chia seed again, yet I will praise you, Lord. Okay? So he's going to find his joy in God. Now, you guys are supposed to be the Pentecostal church, right? Now, I'm thinking, like, we're going to levitate together or something this morning, right? Right? It, 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 it's okay that we can we can have fun together we can laugh together and i'll tell you when it comes to this idea of our joy we do not want to let our circumstances strip it from us but isn't it easy for that to happen well i'll tell you when we consider the passage before us today he chose joy what can we learn From this, let me draw out some observations. I want to draw out some observations I think all of us can benefit from. And the first one is this that ultimately joy is not determined by our circumstances, but by our attitude and perspectives about them. One commentator said about uh, Habakkuk's statement in, in chapter three, he said, He was basically saying, though I starve to death, yet I will still praise you. See, that's good news for us as Christians, because it tells us that the source of a proper relationship with God and the right perspective, we can maintain joy. It's not about our circumstances. I know in my own life, several years ago, two, three years ago, actually, uh, I went through a Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, My studies uh, as a Christian apologist, uh, that is a defender of the faith, had had, uh, been challenged at times because I was always studying materials that constantly challenged our faith. And then I entered into a second doctorate where I was working on my uh, PhD in philosophy and uh, still am trying to wrap that up. And as I would study the different philosophical thoughts and some of that stuff, I would scratch my head and I would feel angst and I would panic and I, I would feel overwhelmed at, God, I just got to know I, I need to know. And some people avoid looking at any other ideas because they don't want to be disturbed. But here I was trying to figure all this stuff out and God would then bring me into a place of embracing mystery again, becoming like a child and knowing that I can trust in Him. I was on a quest to be omniscient, and I'm happy to say it didn't work, (laughs) to be all-knowing. And I had to come to terms with my finitude and know how to rest in God and focus on the questions that there are answered to instead of experiencing existential angst at so much that I don't know. But these doubts brought me to a place of such despair that I wanted to be in the bottom of Lake Norman. Here I was with the National Apologetics Ministry, a pastor of a growing church, and my wife saw a husband that would just sit in the backyard and stare into space. And my kids would see a dad in deep depression. And week by week by week, Openly communicating with elders who were wise enough to know that I wasn't wanting to have these questions and this stuff. My head was just producing questions at a rate faster than I could come up with answers. And it was God's way of bringing me to a place of trust and mystery. And when all was said and done and preaching week by week by faith, and then my book Doubting Toward Faith would flow out of my dark night of the soul. And doubt is often what God uses to make an apologist. And what helps us is when God shows us that He can use our trials and our struggles and He can deepen us. And He can do that in your life today, no matter what it is. Maybe some of you are just ready to throw in the towel. But just know that it's not getting a new spouse. You know, it's not like, you know, I'm kind of bored with this spouse and I'm going to trade my husband in for a new one. It's not getting a new wardrobe. It's not getting a new car. It's something deeper. If, if we choose to believe that if we had this, then we would be joyful. Then we are still basing it on the wrong idea, and that will let us down, whatever that is. I remember hearing a story about a pastor in China who went to prison, and he went there for sharing the gospel. And as he was in prison he had the job of taking care of the cesspool. And it stunk so bad that he would go out to the cesspool, but he actually called the cesspool his garden. And the reason he called it his garden is because that was the one place where the guards would stand so far away. And he knew that he could praise his God out loud without reprimand. See, the pastor didn't allow the fact that he went to prison to rob of him of his joy. Even behind bars, even while he stood in a cesspool, he still had his joy. And that cesspool, for one, was the garden for another. Secondly, I would say, as it relates to this whole idea of of joy is to know that true joy is discovered in the context of a trusting relationship with God, even when life refuses to make sense. Notice what he says in verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength, right? He's claiming it, man. He's saying, I trust in you, God. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So on high places, right? God gives me his perspective. He takes me up high. I can be safe with him. Then he closes the book to the choir master with stringed instruments. I love that. And I like the way the Amplified Version says uh, of this verse. In the Amplified Version, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, set to wild, enthusiastic, and triumphal music. In other words, take my angst that I've learned from and my trust and my prayer. And he says, now go set this to music. And that's what happens. His pain is turned into praise. And his book ends with a shout, with a song. By the way, as it relates to this whole idea then of trusting God and having the right attitude, my last uh, my first semester at Dallas Seminary was Chuck Swindoll's last semester as president. And of all the things that I love that Dr. Swindoll said, none that I can say I loved more than what he had to say about attitude. He said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money. Than circumstances, than failure, than success, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Well said, Mr. Swindoll. The third point that I would draw our attention to as it relates to finding joy again is to know that the express lane that returns us to joy the quickest is found through a life of practicing gratitude. Gratitude. It's found through a life of practicing gratitude. Merton, uh, whom I quoted earlier, also said, those who aren't grateful begin to complain about everything. Here's the deal. One sure way to lose our joy is to complain. When we are complaining, we are just emptying all the joy that we have left. When we are grateful, when we choose to be grateful, right? That is the way we begin to fill our tank again. And so the person who was working the cesspool and called it his garden, he was able to maintain his joy because he was grateful for his life, though the circumstances weren't so great. And I can tell you that that is how God brought me out of my despair and depression. Like, I, I didn't want to be alive And there's a difference between wanting to kill yourself and not wanting to be alive. But I don't want to be alive. But by being thankful and going to bed every night and just thinking of all the things I can thank Him for and waking up, thank you for a new day, and choosing to be thankful, all of a sudden my perspective began to change. And when my perspective began to change, so too did my attitude. And I began to experience joy. And so we have to ignore these emotions of despair, once we've really looked at them, we need to listen to them and lean into them enough to know what's going on to interpret them properly. But when we know it's time to move beyond them, it's time to be thankful and show that rejoicing attitude, it's amazing how that can lead us out of our angst. So I want to encourage all of us to be more grateful to think about the things that we can praise God for, to believe that every time you say thank you for something, it's like pulling your, 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 your soul up to God's gas tank, so to speak, and he can just pour out his joy into us. Gratitude fuels us. It fuels us with joy. So Habakkuk has chosen what? He's chosen to trust. He's chosen to trust God. He's chosen to be grateful And he's chosen joy. And finally, I'd say, take heart and rejoice. Knowing that the seasons of life that we despair the most are actually the seasons that we can grow the most. See, it's possible that some of you right now are in a pit and it feels like a prison. And you want out so bad, but it's that very pit that will form the character that God wants in your life for something in the future. And so, if you're like me, I want to escape when I feel pain and suffering. But instead of trying to get out of it, maybe a better approach would be to ask what God wants us to get out of it and pursuing it that way. Paul said in his book to the Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character hope. So here's what this looks like and practical terms. When we suffer, we have a choice to make. Fight or flight, right? Or persevere. And when we suffer, we make a choice. So when we suffer, suffering produces endurance. And as we endure, endurance produces something, namely character. And as we see that character formed in our life, then that character gives us hope. And sometimes it's hard to see the character that's being formed in our life when we're right in the middle of it. But if we'll rejoice, if we'll trust, if we'll have hope, it'll come and we'll see that something deep, something beautiful has happened in our lives. So I want to encourage us to believe in that. You see, if we want to become like Jesus, we can't become like Jesus without some suffering. Let me give you an example. If we want to be like Jesus and forgive, how are we going to forgive? Well, we have to be hurt in order to forgive. So God allows us then in life to experience hurt so that for the bigger picture, we can be like Jesus and learn unconditional love and forgive. So some of the hurts that we're looking at is we're looking at the hurts and we're getting mad at people. But God say, no, look at Jesus and become like me in love unconditionally. James said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So as I would hear in my first year of sobriety, going to over 400 AA meetings in the first year, they'd say, don't quit before the miracle happens. Sometimes we want to throw the towel in our marriage. Sometimes we want to throw the towel in our job. Sometimes we want to throw the towel in our church. And what we need to do is we need to realize that we're suffering and God has a purpose for it and He wants us to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, let's tie a knot. How does this book come together? Here's the difference Habakkuk was able to get at a mutual mind state with God, he was traumatized by what was happening. That part of the brain, we talked about the amygdala. His amygdala was hijacked, right? And he was just fighting with God. But he ends up in a mutual mind state because he chose to believe God's perspective. And choosing to align himself with God would bring his joy back. Let's see how the book charts out. I would contrast it like this. In the beginning, Habakkuk's in the pits, but by the end, he's on the mountaintops. In the beginning, he's questioning. By the end, he's trusting. In the beginning, he's worried. By the end, he's worshiping. In the beginning, he's filled with questions, but by the end, he's filled with all. In the beginning, he's venting at God, but by the end, he's rejoicing in God. In the beginning, he's full of doubts, but by the end, he's full of faith. In the beginning, he's struggling. But check it out, as you saw that last verse. But by the end, he's singing. And his, his circumstances didn't even change. They went worse from chapter 1, because at his first prayer... He found out afterwards that it's going to get worse. His circumstances got worse. But his perspective changed, and he found his joy. No matter what you're going through today, joy is for the believer. And when we think about joy, we can't help but think about Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He invites us into that joy And I would encourage you that if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, to say yes to Jesus, to trust in his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf by faith. And I would say, Grace Covenant, imagine the difference it would make if three churches would choose joy in a culture that will never be able to find joy apart from Jesus. They'll find happiness based on their happenings. But joy is in Jesus. So why don't you smile Grace Covenant, because you are loved by God, look up to him. He's smiling at you. And smile back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. I praise you for Grace Covenant. What a wonderful church filled with wonderful people and an amazing Savior. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for having me, Grace Covenant. See you tonight.